Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week because Christy has an awesome case for us. And we are recording at nighttime again, so... Who knows what's going to (laughs) happen? So true. (laughs) But today I am covering a request from a listener who has been so awesome at sending us case suggestions. This listener is Amy, so thank you, Amy. We are finally exploring one of the murders that you have sent to us. So keep those requests coming. We may not be able to find the right information to talk about it on our podcast, but we definitely appreciate each one of you who have reached out to us. It's always awesome to have interaction with our fans. We do appreciate it. And speaking of that, please continue to tell your friends about our podcast so we can continue to keep bringing you these dirtbag stories. Shameless plug. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay, but let's get into it. At first, the case we are discussing today may seem like your typical husband murders wife case. But what makes this particular story unique is that the victim in this murder investigation helps police to solve her own murder. And I do have to say that as I wrote that last sentence, it makes me sad to think that a husband murdering his wife is, in fact, a common scenario in the world of true crime. It may seem like once you've heard one, you've heard them all, but each victim deserves to have her story told. They really do. And hopefully one day, it won't be a common thing to talk about husbands murdering their wives. Should we be talking about wives murdering their husbands? (laughs) Hopefully nobody murdering anyone, but it's just such a common scenario. It's true. But I just can't see a world without dirtbags. Not anytime soon, anyway. Unfortunately not. But you know what? If there was never another dirtbag on this earth, don't worry, listeners. There's enough in the past that we could continue talking to you about these cases forever. So true. So many dirtbags. The entitlement and cockiness of today's dirtbag is infuriating. And I'm sure you will join me in delighting that his murdered wife was the one to help put him behind bars. She is such a hero. That's pretty awesome that she got her own little revenge on him. It's like karma came back to bite him in the butt. So poetic when that happens. His just comeuppance. That's right. (laughs) Christy loves that word. I do. Melissa taught me that word and I try to use it whenever I can. (laughs) Let's start our discussion with the husband, David Eric Deist Sr. He was born on September 14, 1957 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. David was raised very religiously and by all accounts had a good upbringing. His parents were a history teacher and a librarian. David's parents put him in Christian-based schools. He graduated high school from Grand Rapids Christian High and then went to Calvin College. Calvin College is now Calvin University, but it is still a Christian school for the Christian Reformed Church. I say Christian a lot all in one. (laughs) (laughs) And was he Christian? (laughs) Yes, he was Christian. (laughs) Career-wise, David first started working for Amway. Amway, short for American Way, is an American multi-level marketing company that sells health, beauty, and home care products. So the more people you can recruit to sign up and sell products underneath of you, the more money you would make. So like a pyramid scheme? Absolutely, a pyramid scheme. (laughs) And was he successful at this? 
I'm not sure if he was or not, but he actually only worked there for a short time before getting hired as an insurance agent for Northwestern Mutual Law, which was reportedly his father-in-law's company. Okay, so he was either a good salesman or his father-in-law had to make sure he had a job. Yeah, I'm not sure which. But he actually makes a really lucrative living, so he must have been good at selling insurance. I find it interesting how there's certain characteristics that lend themselves to different skills. So sometimes salespeople can also kind of border on that manipulative side. Some of them definitely can. A good salesperson, though, isn't going to sell you something that you don't need. But there are some out there that don't even care. They just want to make the sale. Right. So their manipulative personalities lend into that profession. For some of them, it would. Yeah. Well, that could fit for this guy. He would stay working as an insurance agent. And like I said, he was able to make a more than decent living doing so. So they were pretty well off. Hmm. Into adulthood, religion was still very important to David. He served as a deacon in the Westview Christian Reformed Church. He also was the president of the Board of Westside Christian School while his children attended the school. David also served on the Worldwide Christian Schools and Friends of Hilltop University boards. If that wasn't enough, David spent some of his spare time helping young men earn their GEDs. And if he didn't look like a saint already, he also was involved in training a puppy for an organization called Leader Dogs for the Blind. And this is our dirtbag? Yes. This bio of David really makes you wonder how it went so wrong. Yeah, I'm not seeing how he adds up to a dirtbag. Yeah, because so far he seems like this great guy. So does he have this hidden personality under it all? No, we will definitely talk about the motives for his murder as we go along. David met a beautiful woman named Sandra, the woman who would become his future wife and victim. Sandra Ann Bose was born two years after David on December 29, 1957. Friends and family called her Sandy. Sandra was also born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So just a hometown boy and hometown girl? Yep, and we stay in Michigan for the whole case. Did he start working with her father before they were married and that's how they met? Or did he get a job with his father-in-law after they were married? I think they were at least dating when he got the job with his father-in-law. I don't have an exact date of their marriage. I'll kind of get into it, but I believe it was he was already at least dating his daughter. If not, they were married. So there was a little bit of favoritism there, probably. Oh, it was definitely who he knew. Okay. Aside from her family, Sandra's greatest love was horses. She competed in her first horse show at the age of three and was exceptionally good at it. Three? Three. Since like a toddler, she was around horses. Sandra went on to earn many equestrian awards and make a career out of her passion. She and her prize-winning horse Mike showed at the 1999 All-American Quarter Horse Congress in Columbus, Ohio, and ended up in the top five of their class. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I love when someone can take a passion of theirs and turn that into their business or their career. And that's what she did. Mm-hmm. In her obituary, Sandra was described as a talented, caring young woman who possessed a strong faith in God and a deep love for her family and friends. Sandra met David in high school. During her time at Grand Rapids Christian High School, Sandra loved playing sports and was a talented athlete. She won all city and all state honors in volleyball. It sounds like they had fairly similar interests then. Yes. Sandra also went to the same college as David, Calvin College. There she was named MVP of the women's volleyball team. 
Later, she would go on to coach the girls' volleyball team at Westside Christian School, where her children attended. I'm not sure exactly when Sandra and David started dating, but they were married after graduating from college. It seems like a storybook love. Meeting in high school, having lots of friends, getting married, having three kids, two boys and a girl, and living out their all-American dream. Sounds perfect. It does. And to further that white picket fence fantasy, David and Sandra eventually moved to a house in Alpine Township, which had a population of about 14,000. On this property, the Dice built a stable for Sandra. This meant she could raise and train quarter horses and give riding lessons right from home. It's so incredibly sad that this love story fairy tale went so wrong. I just can't even envision how it gets to murder. I know. It's like, David, do you not see what you have sitting right in front of you here? People dream of a life like this. But this is a true crime podcast and we're going to start getting into the nitty gritty. It can't all be white picket fences when we're talking about murder. Be a beautiful world if it could be, though. Right? It is believed that two years before her death, David had tried to kill Sandra but failed. What? It's true. So when he killed her, it wasn't his first attempt. Did she know about the first attempt? Oh, yeah. And she stayed with him? Yes. This would remain a deadly secret just between the two of them. No way. Yeah. How come she didn't go and get help? I was so surprised, too. And I just feel like we cannot judge what Sandra felt in the moment or how she dealt with the situation. And we will talk about it a little bit further in the case. Oh, I have to know what went on now. Because what would convince you to stay with somebody that had tried to kill you? Was he mentally unstable? No, it's just mind blowing. It's shocking that she stayed. And only Sandra will really know. We can speculate and people have theories on why she stayed, but only she knows. It's true. There's always the kids. How did he try to kill her the first time? Was it the same way as he tried to kill her the second time? No, I'll tell you right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. This is an interesting one. (laughs) It is. I found this one very intriguing. So good job, Amy, in recommending this case. Yeah, good choice. On November 19th, 1998, Sandra's neighbor received a knock at their door. When they opened their door, they discovered a bloody Sandra with a severe head injury. Sandra had crawled all the way from her barn to her neighbor's house for help. That just gave me such a visual when I read about it. All through the mud on her hands and knees trying to get help from somebody. Yeah, bleeding profusely from her head. And it's not like they're right next door either. She would have had to travel a distance. They're out in the country. Yeah, they're on a property. Sandra told them that her horse named Dexter had kicked her in the head when she was feeding him. She was rushed to the hospital and treated for her injury. Sandra survived this attack. It would later be discovered that David had hit his wife over the head with an axe hammer. And blame the horse. Yes. And Melissa, this is a new fear unlocked. I had no idea what an axe hammer was, but it is exactly what it sounds like. A tool with a hammer head on one side and an axe blade on the other. It's like the combined worst weapon for both of us. I know. I literally just wrote, it's a weapon that combines both of our fears. You have to look at a picture of an axe hammer. I cannot imagine being attacked with it. And she knew it was her husband that attacked her. Oh, yes. And she collaborated the story that it was the horse. Yes, correct. It is evident to me that if you are hitting someone in the head with such a powerful weapon, you are intending to kill that person. Oh, maybe she didn't believe he was trying to kill her. No, she knew. 
Oh. Also, Sandra was around horses since she was a toddler. I am fairly confident that she would have known how to avoid being kicked in the head by her own horse while feeding it. Yeah. I mean, accidents happen, but you become very familiar of where to stand around a horse. Especially since three years old being around them, you would have a pretty good knowledge of that. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what seems obvious now, people, including hospital staff, believed Sandra's story that her head injury was just an unfortunate barn accident. What's happened before? Mm -hmm. And horses are powerful. Mm -hmm. Could definitely crack your head open. As we know, Sandra stayed with her husband. There was no other signs of abuse, but it seems unfathomable to think that this just came out of nowhere. People speculate that Sandra stayed with David for their children's sake. Their children were in expensive private schools, and some think that Sandra wanted to wait until the children were graduated to escape her husband. And what age were they at this time? Do you know? Yeah, the youngest would have been nine at this time. So it would have been nine, eleven, and then I'm not 100% sure the oldest one, but a couple years older than that. Okay. So she had some time to put in then. Mm-hmm. So they're not little, little, but not nearing the end of their school career either. Right. In hindsight, others believe that Sandra stayed because she was embarrassed and had suffered from low self-esteem. Contrarily, Sandra was described by her pastor as an assertive and confident woman before the incident, but he felt like she became timid afterwards. He thought this change in behavior was because of the headaches she suffered from. And not always looking over your shoulder, waiting for your husband to try and kill you next? Oh, exactly. Yeah. As a result of this vicious attack, it was noted by family and friends that Sandra was never the same. She began to experience mood swings and significant depression. Was this the result of a traumatic brain injury or the knowledge that her so-called loving husband tried to kill her? Perhaps it was both. It's always both. Mm -hmm. I think it really had to be in this situation. Sandra's doctor prescribed her Paxil to treat her depression, and she did improve after she started taking the drug. After the first murder attempt, people around David and Sandra started to notice cracks within their marriage. They were fighting often and had even began sleeping in separate beds. And was there any motive ever explored for why he tried to kill her the first time? Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. But when I learned that they were sleeping in separate beds, I thought, can you imagine living with a person who you knew tried to kill you? How could she have continued to share a bed with a monster husband like that? It would be easier to keep an eye on him, Christy. No, I would want to be locked in my own bedroom, thank you very much. <laughs> with a hammer under my pillow. <laughs> and how would she ever feel safe or calm when around him? It's so true. How would you ever feel safe, even in your own home? You couldn't. You would always be on edge. No wonder she was having difficulty and had depression. Yeah, exactly. And I am so curious what David would have said to try and smooth things over after they both knew that he tried to viciously end her life. Can you imagine that conversation afterwards wanting her to stay what he would have said to her? Oh, could you imagine if it was him that convinced her to stay? He might have. Ugh. Things would stay in turmoil of sorts until the frightful early morning of Wednesday, March 29th, 2000. On this day, David placed a call to 911. And I will read you part of the call transcript. 911, what is your emergency? Ma'am, my wife just tried to kill herself again. I think she did it this time. Okay, what did she do? She shot herself. Okay, where'd she shoot herself at? In the head. An ambulance was dispatched and rushed to the Diced residence. 40-year-old Sandra would be pronounced dead upon hospital arrival. 
The truth was, she was already dead before David even placed the 911 call. When paramedics found her, she was laying on her left side on top of her bed. They immediately could tell that she had suffered a severe wound to the back of her head. How do you shoot yourself in the back of the head? Exactly. We're going to get into it. A gun was found on the bed laying near her hands. There was a large amount of blood on the bed, as you can imagine. Two shell casings were found, one on the floor and one on the nightstand. At first, David was able to convince everyone that Sandra had indeed taken her own life. No way. He even said she had attempted suicide before to make it more believable. I'm sorry, but a paramedic going into that scene, wouldn't they have like already been suspicious? It didn't seem like they were. It was a shorter gun, so the idea was that she could have reached back and pulled the trigger behind her head. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It was plausible that she could have done that. It's just not very common. No. David told police that he had fallen asleep on the couch while watching TV in the family room. The three children were asleep upstairs in their bedrooms. <gasps> they were home? They were. Oh my goodness. That just adds a whole nother level of dirtbag. Why not even just send your kids on an overnight sleepover or having them in the home while you kill their mother? Not even thinking about what kind of trauma that would do to them? No. And they had been sleeping through the night. This was in the early morning hours. This is what the children wake up to. Oh my goodness. Uh-huh. That is awful. He is awful. David lied and said that when he heard a gunshot, he ran to the bedroom where his wife was and found her shot. He said she was laying with the gun in her hand still. He rushed over and removed the gun from her hand and took out the magazine. The gun was a Smith & Wesson 9mm semi-automatic, registered to David. So it was like a handgun. Yeah. David played his part as a distraught grieving widower. Suspicion of foul play would not arise until Sandra's autopsy was performed. During her autopsy, it was discovered that Sandra didn't have just one wound to the head. Instead, she sustained two bullet wounds, which entered her head, one just above the other. Oh, and it would have been a bloody mess, so they wouldn't have seen it right at the scene. Exactly. Because the tissue tears. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the autopsy that they could actually tell. According to court records, the medical examiner could not say for sure that Sandra held or fired the gun. It was a possibility. What he could say for sure is that there was no way she could have administered both gunshots to herself. The first bullet entered Sandra's brain in a spot that would have incapacitated her immediately. It would have been impossible for her to then reposition the gun and shoot herself a second time. Yeah, that's not likely at all. No. The coroner also noted that there was no gunpowder or blood spatter on Sandra's hands. The gun did have blood spatter on it, and if Sandra had shot herself, that spatter would have extended to her hands and maybe even possibly her arms. Sandra's death was officially ruled a homicide. This finding would be confirmed by a second coroner during court. And so they're going to go right to David. Yeah, of course. It's always the husband. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's often the husband. But I guess that's not true because in the Derek Todd Lee case, there were several husbands that were accused of killing their wives and it was him. That's true. Because these dirtbag husbands make it hard for all the other husbands. <laughs> that's right. They ruin it for everybody. Just don't be a dirtbag. Exactly. David was brought in for questioning, but never once wavered in his story. He would go to his grave, maintaining his innocence. David freely handed over the clothing he was wearing when his wife died and agreed to take a polygraph test. 
He was given two separate tests, and during both, he denied having anything to do with his wife's murder. Both polygraph examiners concluded that David was being truthful, and he passed both tests. Yeah, but they're not reliable. They're I'm not. not believing it. It's true. But I did have to put that in there because he did pass both of those tests. Had he deluded himself into thinking that he didn't do it? I don't know. I think he did. <laughs> However, all evidence seemed to point to the husband, and so David was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. And I love it when they just slap those extra little charges on there. <laughs> Charge him with whatever you can. We are going to spend some time going over the evidence and court proceedings, because surprisingly, many people, including some of his family, believe that David did not kill Sandra. What? I am not one of these people, but maybe you or some of our listeners will be. But that's why we're going to kind of go through it. It was the one-armed man, Christy. The one-armed man. Yeah, from The Fugitive. Don't you know that movie? Yeah, but I don't remember. I've seen it. <laughs> the doctor husband blames it on the one-armed man and nobody believes him. So he ends up getting convicted and then he escapes from jail and proves that it actually was the one-armed man with the <laughs> prosthetic. Haven't you seen the movie? Yeah, but I don't remember. You know how many movies I've seen? <laughs> I might have to rewatch that one. <laughs> so who did he blame it on? He's going with the story that she killed herself. Oh, even though there's irrefutable evidence that she could not have shot herself twice in the head. Right. And I'm going to tell you about the arguments that he makes in okay. regards to that. Most of this information that we're going to talk about, I was able to take from actual court documents. Some parts I will be quoting from the summaries without saying quote, just so you're aware. That just gets too cumbersome sometimes. It does. <laughs> I'm getting lazy. I don't want to say quote 10 million times in the next couple paragraphs. It's still in my own words. Just if you read the court document, you'd be like, oh, that sounds just like what Christy said. Okay. Because I took it right from the court document. She's just keeping it real, people. Yeah. Well, normally, even if I'm quoting even like, say, three or four words together, I'll say quote. So it's something like that where I'll put those couple of words in there right from the document to fit in my sentence, if that makes sense. Okay. During the trial, the defense argued that the gun malfunctioned and accidentally double fired. So this is what they're saying. The prosecution argued that the gun had been tested and was working perfectly fine. The gun was test-fired six times and never malfunctioned. It was also determined that a second shot of the gun would take the same amount of pressure, between eight and a quarter and eight and a half pounds of weight, to pull the trigger, making it highly unlikely that the second shot was accidentally administered. So it's not like she could have shot herself and then as her hand was shifting on the gun, it accidentally fired again. Okay. Because it was going to take that eight pounds of weight right. to pull it. And what's the reload time? It was said that the gunshots were heard half a second apart. So almost immediately. Okay. We know that the first shot killed her or incapacitated her at least. Right. But you can have a like your muscles can go through a, a knee jerk reaction and tighten. And maybe it tightened again. But I'm trying to determine like how fast that bullet could have reloaded. They said half a second it took. Okay. The experts didn't believe that she could have pressed that trigger yes. a second time. Well, the experts would know. Yeah. Not me. <laughs> what? Aren't we experts on everything? Nope. <laughs> Far from Not it. Not at all. David managed to give his defense team names of people who would testify that Sandra was suicidal. Surprisingly and heartbreakingly, all three of David and Sandra's children testified in court in their father's favor. And I thought how horrible this must have been on them. I am sure they did not want to believe that their father could have committed such a heinous act, especially towards their mother. It's true. And they would have firsthand knowledge of the struggles that their mom was facing with depression. 
And so he was presenting them with a really plausible story for them to believe in. And when you don't want to believe the counter story, then you believe in the made up story even more, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, that would have been so hard for them. Yeah. And that's where I you used the word manipulation in regards to him. Like, yeah. it seems a little manipulative to me. And again, like in other cases, I'm not going to use the children's names. The 11-year-old boy stated that his mom seemed to be her usual self leading up to the incident. She didn't seem overly depressed. He said he woke up that morning to what sounded like two loud piano chords. He said after the noise, he heard his dad run from the family room through the kitchen and hallway and into the bedroom. He then heard his dad forcefully open the door. He also said his mom was afraid of guns and didn't own one herself. That's very suspicious. Why would you choose to kill yourself with a gun if you were afraid of it when pills are such an easier option? And she obviously had access to pills because she had her own prescriptions. And she probably had access to horse tranquilizers and other oh, horse medication. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Mm -hmm. That would do the job easily, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Their 13-year-old daughter told the court that the night before her mother's death, Sandra was in her bed doing crossword puzzles. And this seems like a calm thing to do if you knew you were going to end your life the next morning. My thought is that she would likely have been spending her last moments with her children. She was always described as a good, loving mother to her kids. Yeah, she would have secretly been trying to say goodbye to them, right? Yeah, would you be sitting in your bed doing crossword puzzles? I don't know. Some people are pretty crazy about the crossword puzzles. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't seem plausible to me. No, not at all. The daughter said she was woken up by the sound of her dad running up the stairs. She heard urgent voices, and so she peeked out of her room. Her dad told her and her little brother to stay in their rooms. Voices? It's the other brother. Okay. She also testified about her mother getting hit in the head by her horse, Dexter, and that her mom and dad had fought more often after the incident, and that her mom did seem depressed. And she was older, so she would have been more in tune with those kind of feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's 13. Mm -hmm. A little bit more aware of what was going on. Exactly. Harder to hide it from at that age. David and Sandra's oldest son testified that his mom seemed normal the day before her death. He said that on the morning in question, he was laying in his bed when he heard two loud bangs, only half a second apart. Like his siblings, he heard his dad run through the house and barge into the bedroom. Next, he heard his dad on the phone, so he left the room to see what was happening and met his father on the stairs. His father told him that his mother had shot herself. This eldest son also testified that his mother hated guns. Hmm. The children's testimonies would suggest that David was asleep on the couch and did run to his wife's aid when he heard the gunshots. But did he stage this and quickly scoot back to the living room and then loudly run into the bedroom to trick his kids? Or was he telling the truth? But how would he do that in such short succession? Because the oldest said he heard the gunshots and then he heard his father running through the house. Mm -hmm. So what was the time lapse between those two things? That I don't know. Yeah, that's really suspicious. It is. Especially since all three of them say they heard him run through the house. Right. But I don't know. You know, you're asleep. You're woken up by these sounds. Does it take you a minute or two? You know, you're thinking to yourself, what was that sound? And then it maybe it's a whole minute later you hear your dad running through the house. That's enough time. 30 seconds is probably enough time to get out of the bedroom into the living room. And if they heard him running both ways, maybe? Oh, could be. Then how would you distinguish one from the other? Yeah. Huh. It's just very curious that they all have that recollection. But mm -hmm. then we all know how much our senses can be tricked when we want to believe something. That's true. 
Maybe he just ran down the hallway by their bedrooms and quickly ran back past their rooms and flung open the door. Mm -hmm. That's not very far at all. No. Or did he tell his kids to say that? Do you think he had them lie for him? I hope not. That would be such a dirtbag thing to do. Yeah. I don't think so. I think maybe by the time the children reached adulthood, maybe they would have said something, but hard to say. I think he tricked them. Yeah. And with just waking up, they would have been disorientated. Their senses wouldn't have been as accurate. Yeah, I believe so. When David handed his clothing from the day of the murder over to the police, there was no noticeable blood on the clothing. I am assuming he washed the items. The clothing was sent to the state police evidentiary laboratory to be tested. A crime scene expert testified that there was a high-velocity mist pattern of blood spatter on the fitted sheet and pillow where Sandra's body was found. The expert noticed that there was void in the spatter that would suggest that someone was standing behind Sandra when she was shot. This void in pattern would suggest that the shooter would have been hit with the missing spatter. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. I'm just saying... They're just taking his word that the clothes that he's handing over are the ones that he was wearing that day? Well, they were. What? They were. Why not just hand them another set of clothing? I don't know. Burn those ones and be like, yep, this is what I was wearing. Yeah, unless paramedics had testified to what he was wearing at the time, I'm not sure. But he would have had time to change between when the paramedics were called and when they arrived. (laughs) Exactly. Not that we want to give murderers any tips, but... Dumb dirtbag. Yeah. (laughs) He definitely did hand over the articles of clothing that he was wearing that morning because David's shirt was closely examined and, big surprise, there was blood found on his shirt. No way. Sandra's blood. The markings were consistent with the mist of blood spatter found at the scene. David claimed that when he ran to his wife's aid in an attempt to help her... She coughed and blood had spewed from her mouth onto his shirt. I'm sorry, a mist is very different from sputum flying out of your mouth. Exactly. The expert testified that the blood on David's shirt did not get there from a cough, but rather from high-velocity blood mist consistent with the shooting. This suggests that David was standing behind his wife when she died, less than four feet away. Dirt bag. Yeah. From behind. Like he couldn't even face her. No. No, she would have had no idea. Both times he approached her from behind. Mm -hmm. Because he's a coward. And I just love science. That they can look at her pillowcase and her bedding and know like, okay, there's a piece missing here. A piece of the puzzle is gone. Where did this blood go? Mm -hmm. And then he hands over his shirt. And oh, there it is. Yeah, that is an incredible science. Mm -hmm. Aside from the evidence already presented in court, authorities would be given a smoking gun of sorts by Sandra's sister, Mary Ellen. According to Mary Ellen, in the spring of 1999... Sandra called her and told her that if anything ever happened to her, she left a note hidden in her china cabinet. She had left a letter. Yes. About the first murder attempt. Yes. I am so in love with this aspect of the case. Mary Ellen forgot about this phone call when she first learned about her sister's death. However, after her sister had originally called and told her about the letter, Mary Ellen texted a group chat that she had for her prayer group and told them about what Sandra said. After finding out about Sandra's death, it was one of the prayer group members who reached out and reminded Mary Ellen about the hidden letter. Oh, would you not just have chills run all over you? Yeah. When you heard about her death? I can't even imagine. So Mary Ellen was so distraught learning that her sister was dead that it didn't even cross her mind until her friend was like, hey, remember that letter that she 
said she put in her china cabinet. Maybe someone needs to read that. Good on her for remembering. Yeah, that woman alone helped seal the deal in this case. Hmm. Mary Ellen immediately went to the police with this information, and when the police went to the diced home, they did in fact find a white sealed envelope hidden at the back of the china cabinet. Oh, so the sister didn't even go look for it herself? She just told the police? Yeah, which is the right thing to do. Yeah. Because then they can't say she planted it. They needed to be the ones to discover it to make sure it would hold up in court. That was smart on her part. And I'm not sure that many other people would have thought that through. I think I would have just went and I would have had to look for the letter. Yeah. I wouldn't have told the police about it because I would want to see what was in the letter. Yeah, because maybe you weren't sure. And then told the police about it. Yeah, taking it to the police. Yeah. There's a good chance I might have done that as well. Or called the police and said, meet me over there. Yeah, I don't think I would have been smart enough to do that. Yeah, I might not have either. Super smart sister. Yeah, these women that are helping get this letter brought to light were amazing. Even the officers arriving at the scene, can you imagine what was going through their minds? How often do you get a letter from the murder victim herself? Forensics proved that the fingerprints on the letter and the DNA taken from the saliva on the envelope belonged to Sandra. Her signature was also an exact match, proving that she did write this letter. Her letter read, quote, To anyone interested in what happened to me, look to David Dice Sr. On November 19th, my accident was no accident. David beat me with a hammer axe. He came from behind while I was in Dexter's stall. He hit me repeatedly. Only when I told him I would sell my horse and support him in leaving the partnership he had formed with my dad would he let me go. I ran to Gray's house when David called 911. I feared he would come back and kill me. If anything has happened to me, look first to David Diced Sr. He could be my killer. I would never commit suicide. He may have killed me. Respectfully, Sandra A. Diced. Was there a date on the letter? It was in 1999. But all I can say is, insert mic drop Sandra. Wow. How much fear would she have had to live in to actually put something concrete down on paper and make those fears real and then still live in that house with him? Absolutely. This letter is so chilling and so telling. Ever since the first attempted murder on her life, Sandra must have been in constant fear, like you said, and worrying about her husband's actions towards her. She was worried that he was going to finish the job. And I thought even hiding the letter, knowing that David could have found it, it would have been so nerve-wracking. Well, and I wonder if there were certain things about his behaviors and his personalities towards her that made her think that he was going to use her depression as an excuse for her to commit suicide. Because even that part she put in it. Yeah, exactly. So he first attempted to take her life in 1998. By 1999, she hid the letter, and by 2000, she was murdered. Wow. She had him totally pegged. Mm -hmm. David argued that Sandra left that letter in one last attempt to get back at him. He said she was obviously trying to frame him for murder. But then I question, why didn't she leave it in a more noticeable spot? And why did she tell her sister about it an entire year prior? If she was trying to bring him down with her, I think she would have hid the note and told her sister just prior to taking her own life to make sure her sister would remember. Yeah, even in leaving it just on the bedside table. Yeah, or even just inside your drawer. Yeah. Under your pillow in the bed. Regardless of what he had to say in his defense, it was becoming very clear that David had killed his wife. But why? Well, one of those reasons was a brunette with glasses. No way. At the office? Yep. His secretary. Oh, so cliche. <laughs> yes. 
She was a woman named Linda Ryan. Linda worked for David at Northwestern Mutual Life. Linda started working for the company in 1995, and by July of 1998, three months before the first murder attempt, Linda and David began having an affair. So did Sandra know about Linda during the first attack? She did not, but she did know about Linda when she was murdered. Oh. Linda was called to testify in court. She admitted that they were having an affair and corroborated David's story, stating that he had told her that his wife had tried to end her life on three separate occasions. Linda said that herself and David had agreed to each divorce their current spouses so that they could finally be together and get married. So did Linda know that he was going to kill his wife? I don't believe that she did. Okay. The month before Sandra's murder, on February 7th, 2000, Linda's divorce was finalized. In March, the same month as the murder, Linda took a leave of absence from work because her ex was giving her trouble and because David hadn't left his wife yet like they had agreed. Oh, so she was putting pressure on him? I think so. Two days before the murder, on March 27th, Linda testified that David came to her apartment to see her and told her that he was for sure going to divorce Sandra. He said Sandra was already looking for an apartment, and whether she left or not, he was filing for a divorce. Linda was happy about this news and admitted to looking online at sites where you could design your own wedding rings later that same night. Oh man, so he's duping them both. I think he really was planning to go and marry Linda. So why not just leave then? I'd never get this. Just leave. I know, but we are going to talk about why he thought this was better. David testified and also admitted to the extramarital affair. He said that he had met with a divorce lawyer a month before his wife killed herself. He said that Linda never gave him an ultimatum to leave his wife. But didn't she? Was that leave of absence not a sign, David? David said that he had told Sandra on the Friday prior to her death that he was filing for a divorce and that he had an excellent chance of gaining custody of their children. Hence, that's why she killed herself. Yes. What a dirtbag. He suggested to the court that after his wife was hit in the head by her horse, she became depressed and that she had attempted suicide in the past and was now informed that she was likely going to lose custody of her kids. I assume to give the court imaginary reason why she would have wanted to end her life. Except he was the one that hit her with a hammer axe. Exactly. And shot her with a gun. David also presented to the court a voicemail message left to him by Sandra, where she basically said she was pushed beyond her limit and that their marriage and her life was over. David tried to use this as proof that she took her own life and he was innocent. Yeah, right. She's probably just telling him, like, you need to hit the curb. Yeah. And when you say my life is over, that does not mean I'm going to go kill myself. No. Life as she knew it was over. It was over the first time you hit her in the head, David. When questioned about the gun that he had purchased less than three months before the murder, David said he was going to start going to the gun range with his oldest son because he used to love going shooting with his deceased brother. And I assume this was an attempt to try and win some sympathy with the court. Barf. The defense was also able to find two expert witnesses in psychiatry and psychology to testify that Sandra's behavior leading up to her death after her head injury was consistent with someone who was contemplating suicide. I beg to differ. Maybe she was acting like a woman terrified for her life who sustained a traumatic brain injury and knew her husband was willing to cross the line and murder her. Did you think about that, Miss or Mr. Expert Witnesses? It's so true. How do you differentiate those? 
without actually having examined her and talked to her. Yeah, there was no journal found where she was talking about ending her life. She was depressed. Like, would she not have exhibited those same behaviors? Because her husband was stepping out on her and trying to kill her? Yeah. And she had a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Which we know can change your personality a little bit. Mm -hmm. She was depressed. And she was always on edge. Of course, she's going to be behaving differently. As it turned out, Linda was not David's only motive for killing his wife. Any guesses what cliche reason he had in addition to having an affair? Did she have a huge life insurance policy? (laughs) Yep. His other reason was for financial gain. Did he phone the insurance company two days after and try to collect? No, he's smart about this because remember, he sells insurance. Okay. During court, it came out that David was having money trouble. Despite earning a hefty wage, his income was on the decline. David was behind in payments to his kids' school. David had taken out multiple insurance policies on Sandra's life that amounted to over half a million dollars. Like I said, his business was selling insurance, so he knew exactly which policies to take out. Each one of the policies would pay out regardless of his wife's cause of death. Suicide was not an exemption of pay. He particularly went looking for those ones. Yes, because a lot of the time, suicide will void the insurance policy payout. Mm -hmm. Killing his wife would be more profitable in David's eyes than divorcing her. He would resolve his debts and money troubles. Plus, he wouldn't have to pay for a messy divorce, child support, or alimony. He would be able to keep their home and all of the assets they had accumulated over the years. Not to mention, he would be free to finally be with his secretary, Linda. She was just going to move in and take over. I guess. People who had been in court during the trial commented that David had an attitude that didn't sit right with them. He came across as cocky and overly relaxed. He made jokes and badmouthed his dead wife. (gasps) No, he didn't. He did. Like, when you call him a dumb dirtbag, yeah. If you're trying to defend yourself and claim that your wife killed herself, you don't start badmouthing her. You at least pretend to be sad. Wow. The trial lasted 24 days, and the jury deliberated for less than six hours. Almost exactly a year after Sandra's death, in March of 2001, David was found guilty on all charges. David was sentenced to life without parole, plus two years for the firearm charge. Just add that in there, just a little extra jab. (laughs) Yep. David was sent to the Saginaw Correctional Facility in Michigan to serve his time. Rumor has it that this is a tough prison for inmates. Good. It is highly protected with a, quote, buffer fence, double chain link fences, razor ribbon wire, electronic detection systems, an armed patrol vehicle, and gun towers. This prison was not messing around. So if they're like that just on the outside, I can only imagine what it was like on the inside. It was not a walk in the park like some other prisons can be in comparison. Mm. As I mentioned earlier, David never stopped fighting for his innocence and freedom. He approached the court with appeals. He argued about the evidence and claimed he had ineffective counsel. His appeals were denied by the Michigan Supreme Court. David passed away at the Saginaw Correctional Facility on April 16, 2018, at the age of 58 from an illness. He is buried at the Woodland Cemetery in Grand Rapids, Michigan. One thing I found interesting was how torn family members were regarding David's conviction. The death write-up that I found about him said, quote, and this is after he's fully convicted. Fully convicted, yes. It said, quote, David was a devout Christian who practiced his faith under difficult circumstances. 
Now he is in heaven with his Savior. Nowhere does it mention anything about his murder charges. It talks about how he was survived by his three children and four grandchildren. From what I could tell, family gave him a proper loving funeral before his burial. We've said it before, but cases like this must be so hard on both sides of the family. Yeah, I can't even imagine how you navigate that as family members and those poor children caught in between their mom's family and their dad's family. Yeah. Well, and often write-ups will say something about the murder, but this just alluded to him being this loving father, didn't say anything about him serving time in prison. But when I looked on Sandra's write-up, it had this beautiful write-up and at the very end, cause of death, murdered by her husband. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So his family very clearly did not believe that he had done it. And Sandra's family very clearly believed that he had done it. That's what I believe, yes. If oh. we're looking at those write-ups. Mm-hmm. Peter Deist, David's father, believed in his son's innocence. He had already lost his other son, Peter, in a tragic way. His son Peter was a police officer and had been electrocuted when he tried to save a man from drowning in 1994. Oh, no. Sandra's parents, Lawrence and Sarah Bose, were also no stranger to heartbreak. Not only had their daughter Sandra been murdered, but they later also lost their other daughter, Mary Ellen, prematurely. Both parents, I can't even believe, would have to lose two children each. Sandra, if that would bring them actually together. I don't know that there's any family reunions going on there, but maybe for the sake of the children. Sandra's parents created a scholarship in her honor for $3,000 given for physical education or recreational majors at Calvin College, where their daughter had graduated from. As far as Sandra and David's children go, they stayed with Sandra's parents during the trial, but I am unsure who gained custody of them long term. I can't imagine how hard that would be for those children to stay with their mom's family while they were going to go to court and defend their dad. Yeah, that would be a very delicate situation for sure. Those poor kids. Mm -hmm. Just David's stupid decision just made it so difficult for everybody involved. Everybody that knew and loved them. And affected so many lives. Mm -hmm. Wow. And for an update on the children, the oldest son reportedly serves in the military and their daughter works in healthcare. I didn't find what the youngest son does, just that all three of them were last reported as still living in Michigan. And that is the story of a devout Christian turned dirtbag murderer after deciding his torrid affair and a payday was more important than the life of his wife, the selfish crumb of a man, David Eric Deist. What a dirtbag. Massive dirtbag. <laughs> so cliche. He was. He's why we have these cliches and these stereotypes of husband murderers. It's either money or it's women or it's both. Always both, usually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's always both. But like I said, what I loved about this case is Sandra was basically able to speak from the grave and let the world know who David actually was. It just made him so much more of a dirtbag to blame it on her depression and all of the things that he caused. Yeah. I was just going to say that she was depressed because of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty wild. But like always, I really hope that the children were able to work through this. I'm sure it's still affects them to this day. And hopefully they're living wonderful lives because I know that's what Sandra would have wanted. And that's always our hope for the victims families. Absolutely. But that's it for this week. We'll be back next week when Melissa brings us another case. Until then. See ya. Bye.
has Christy got a case for you? I was laughing because I was like, there's a toilet flushes. (laughs) It's going to be a good night, Christy. And he's like, I saw the back of your shirt and wondered if you were talking about me. (laughs) And I was like, well, if you're a dirt bag, I was. (laughs) He's just coming up. His, what is it? Just come up and has just come up. I always as a kid had a hard time saying jewelry. Like I have to really think of it. Jewelry. Because like it would <laughs> jewelry. Be, yeah. Jewelry. Jewelry. <laughs> but we're not little kids anymore. I know. Really, I should be able to say burglary. No, I still have to think about it before I say it. <laughs> but then we'd be out of a job. So <laughs> true. Maybe we should just start a podcast and talk about good stories. <laughs> Poor Dexter getting the blame for Dirtbag Dave. Well, then. Christy wants to crack that guy's head open. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be like all quiet when we do yours. It seems like it's always so loud during mine. Well, she would. The way that the wound. She would. The way. Um, we are, I, I believe, David. Does he get the death penalty? I'm not telling you no, yet. Come on. <laughs> Verbatim. Yeah, exactly. Is that what that means? Verbatim is word for word. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? I don't ver- know. Verbatim is word for word, I think. <laughs> okay. We talked about this way longer than I thought we were going to. <laughs> 30 seconds isn't long enough then to go downstairs. I could run from here to my room up two floors up in 30 seconds. Okay, let's time it because I don't think you I can. promise you I could. 30 <laughs> seconds? Yeah, no. Oh, you totally could. From here to my bedroom, you could run 30 seconds. Okay. Thir- think how long 30 seconds is. Yeah, maybe. Think, okay, if you left right now, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five. You're already up to We're the gonna landing. We're going to do it afterwards. You're already at the landing at five seconds. You could totally get up there. Yeah, maybe. Super smart sister. Yeah. Oh, I shouldn't have clapped. Super smart sister. And now we're going to turn our time over to the good stuff. (laughs) That's the reason we put in our bloopers so we can end on a happy note. Yep. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.